Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com. Hello and welcome to Standard Deviations. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. My guest today is Dr. Sarah Acevedo, Assistant Professor at Texas Tech University and past president of the Financial Therapy Association. Dr. Sarah's research has won multiple awards and she has been published in some of the finest peer-reviewed journals around, including the Journal of Behavioral Finance and the Journal of Financial Planning. Uh, She's here with us today to share some of that fascinating research around money, happiness, meaning, and personality. Dr. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I want to begin with your co-authored paper titled Functioning to Flourishing that looks at the role of positive psychology and and the role that positive psychology can play in financial planning. And, And specifically, if you would, I want you to help educate the, uh, the listeners on what positive psychology is and how it might look different than behavioral finance as popularly conceptualized as sort of the study of, of bias, if you will. Sure. Great uh, opening topic. So positive psychology has really become popular in a lot of different domains, uh, like in the workplace and education and some of these other areas, even health. And it has been around for a little while now. I would say in the last um, decade or so, it really started to rise to prominence under the leadership of Martin Seligman. And it's become known and is known as this area within psychology that focuses on this dimension that helps us go from just functioning through life to flourishing in life. And it evolved from the idea that psychology has historically focused on treating mental illness and helping people move from uh, this mental illness state to more of a functioning state where they're more effectively functioning as a family member, as a spouse in the workplace and school and it was in their social environment. And positive psychology came along and said, that's great, but we're not done yet. Mm. We can do more to help people optimize their experience in life to get more out of it. So instead of just being a parent and being there with your kids, how are you optimizing your experience, theirs and yours with the kids? So things like meaning and mindfulness and relationships are aspects of positive psychology that studies how to improve and optimize these aspects such that we're not just functioning, we are flourishing in life. So that's that's positive psychology. And in the paper you mentioned, Daniel, Martin C. and I looked at that, looked at positive psychology and its goals and interventions. And we said, oh, my goodness, that has a direct relationship with what we're trying to accomplish in financial planning. And similar to psychology, financial planning has historically focused on this I will call a deficit paradigm. So when we look at a client's balance sheet and financial situation, we look for the issues, the things we need to fix, the holes we need to fill. So do they have enough insurance? Do they have an over-concentration in a particular stock position and need diversification? Do they have an estate plan? Do they have this, this, or that? So we're trying to fix their financial situation so that they're functioning, so that the financial plan flows and it supports them and there's no major 
issues to where something could blow up and cause a catastrophe to their finances. So similarly, that's taking something from a deficit perspective to working. And just like positive psychology, I believe that we can do so much more than that because the way we use money has a direct impact on the things that matter in life to optimize that life, such as how are we uh, fostering vibrant relationships? How are we achieving uh, meaning and accomplishment in our lives? How do we experience engagement, the psychological immersion into stuff that we're doing? All of those things matter and often require money to make happen at some level. So positive psychology applies to financial planning in that way. That's different than biases. Biases are part of our cognitive processing and can skew how we see things and how we process and interpret things. But positive psychology takes a much broader approach and says, how are we achieving an optimal life and how does money support that? Biases may be part of that. We may you know, have a financial situation, not be financially satisfied by it, unless we can shift our thinking in some way. You know, that would be an example, maybe a bias in how we're viewing our money. Uh, positive psychology seeks to treat the, the whole picture and help us align money with what we truly want. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to me the way the field of behavioral finance sort of mirrors the larger field of psychology in some respects. You know, we had a hundred and hundred and something years of, of, clinical psychology, right? The, the study of psychopathology and weakness and frailty and deficits before we ever got to studying what makes people flourish, what makes people great parents or great leaders or, or great with money for that matter. And you know, it occurs to me just, you know, if you think about loss aversion and, and the asymmetry with which we, we weigh being presented with our own strengths versus being presented with our own weaknesses, it seems like a strengths-based positive psychology-based approach to financial planning as a client is just such a better experience than being beaten over the head with, with all the things you're doing poorly. We know people are already scared of being judged. We know people are already scared of being condescended to or looked down on by financial professionals. That's a primary reason many never seek out a, a professional in the first place. So I, I love this focus, you know, we talked before we went on, I've had a number of, of, of your colleagues and, and uh, research partners on in the, in the past couple of weeks. And uh, there's been a consistent focus on this positivity and holism and wellness uh, that, that I just can't do enough to, to sort of pound the table on. I want to move from your, your excellent general description of, of what positive psychology is in a financial planning context and, and talk about a specific instance of that uh, in a paper in which you were the lead author, you, you looked at a specific positive psychology intervention called Three Good Things, and you compared its efficacy in its most general sort of psychotherapeutic sense to more specific instances, uh, more specific financial instances of that. Can you tell us about this research? What, it, what is Three Good Things generally? Uh, why does it work and, and how does it or does it not work in, in a financial context? We looked at, and when I say we, I mean myself, Martin C., uh, Todd Little, Shane Anede, and Blake Gray. So we had a crew uh, implement this experimental study, and we were interested in how the three good things exercise applies to someone's finances and the financial domain. So first, what is the three good things exercise? Well, it's a well-known positive psychological intervention 
that involves a one week experiment, if you will. You essentially at the end of the at the end of each day for one week, you write down three things that went well and also why they went well. Uh, you also reflect on how you contributed to those things going well, because the way we explain events mm -hmm. actually plays a big role in how we feel about them. So in the paper you mentioned, Daniel, there's something called optimistic and pessimistic explanatory styles, which if you want to, we can get into later, but you're watching for how you're explaining that event to you. Like if it was a good event, did it just happen randomly or did you make it happen in some way because you took action and control over something, you used your personal capabilities to make it happen. Else we want what we want to see for good events, right? So when you're reflecting on these good events, you're, you're being intentional, you're thinking of, of these events throughout the day. And if you do that for at least one week, the research shows that that gives a boost in happiness and that lasts for you know, an extended period of time. And obviously it's helpful if you continue the exercise. And if you do, then it also becomes more normal and natural and you're more likely to continue as a habit. So each one of us has sort of this negativity bias. So when we go throughout our day, we tend to pay a lot of attention to things that maybe harmed us or we perceive that they didn't go well or maybe it obviously didn't go well and we just hang on to those and they are pretty enduring thoughts in our brains and that's normal. Uh, we have this sort of heightened attention to negative things because they might be threats or we might have to deal with them. And we often forget or put you know, in second place these good things that happen which are just as real in our experience as the bad things. So this exercise helps us intentionally become more mindful around what those good things are and how we contributed to them. And it's not so that we can forget or ignore the bad things. There may be some real threats or things that we need to pay attention to. And trust me, we're not going to forget about them. They're there. Uh, but this exercise just helps us reframe, end the day a little bit better and reorient our, our framing and paying attention to these things that really matter quite a bit in our life. We were interested in doing an experiment where we had people think about three good things for one group. We had another group think about three good financial things. So here we're applying it to the financial domain. We also wanted to see what happened people just thought about three financial things, not framing good or bad, just think about three financial things. We wanted to see what people said. And then we had a control group that didn't do any of those exercises. And in a nutshell, what we found is actually the traditional three good things exercise that is not specifically oriented towards finances was the most effective in in combination, boosting happiness and financial satisfaction. So we did see a crossover to the financial domain just by having people think about three good things in their life. So that's what we found. We found it to be least effective in our smaller experimental study, which we need even more research to look into these positive psychological interventions for future research. So it's it's so interesting that sort of the general intervention was the one that was was most effective in that it did have sort of a follow-on effect in terms of people's financial well-being. Mm -hmm. It's such an interesting finding to me because money touches every part of our lives and every part of our lives touch money. And so it's like it's you look at it from a systems perspective and if you can help one part of a person's life, you can really help 
you know, the money part of their life. There's almost nothing you could do to make someone's life better that I think wouldn't have some sort of knock-on salutatory impact on their on their financial well-being. So mm-hmm. I want to I want to back you up a minute. I do indeed want to spend a little bit of time. You know, it it put me in mind of some of the locus of control research, right? If people have an internal or an external locus of control, whether they sort of attribute things that happen to being within their power or to externalities. Did you find in when looking at people's explanatory style what, what do you do when someone consistently sort of attributes the best things in their life to the universe or happenstance or luck? Because that's not uh, that's not as empowering, perhaps, as as something that has more of an internal locus of control. How how do you try and reorient that explanatory power without being overbearing? Being aware and then intentional, being open to that might not be the whole truth. There might be more to this story than this just happened because the universe was in my favor this day, right? Mm -hmm. So being, and sometimes if you're aware of it, you can work on yourself and your own awareness and combating those beliefs. Um, But usually it might take someone else to intervene. So I would say financial professionals can watch for those explanatory styles that might not be healthy or or conducive to that client's well-being and challenge those beliefs and say, okay, um, you know, maybe you're interpreting this as this was due to luck or, or whatever. I want you to pause and think for a minute about how you might have contributed to this. Is there something you did that may have set you up for success here? And you're not telling them think internally, you know, you're, you're using the story and saying, okay, that's, that sounds great. Let's explore this from a different angle. What do mm-hmm. you think? And so taking that sort of approach can be really helpful. There's also different explanatory styles for good and bad events. Mm-hmm. So paying attention to, is this a bad thing that happened or is it a good thing uh, impacts whether or not it's healthy or helpful to attribute it to yourself or not. So uh-huh. for example, a, a bad event, if, a pessimist would explain that from more of a permanent universal internal perspective and say, uh, the example I have in the paper uh, that Martin C. and I wrote uses an investment portfolio loss as an example. So a pessimist or a pessimistic explanatory style would explain that event such as, I can't understand investments. Investments are too risky. And I made poor investment decisions. That's why my portfolio is down. Now, there could have been some bad timing of some sales that could be part of it. uh, But you can see how that explanatory style is very permanent, is very pervasive, and it attributes the cause specifically to yourself, which may not be the whole story. Uh, someone with an optimistic explanatory style would explain that same event from a temporary, specific, and external manner, such as, I don't understand last year's investment market decline. So that's specific to not, I can't understand investments, but I can't understand what happened last year. So that's that's temporary and it's specific in terms of the, the market last year. And they might say, well, stocks had poor performance, not the the whole investment market is too risky, but the stock specifically had a poor performance last year. So that would be specific. They would also attribute the decline to something external. So investment markets decline sometimes. That's totally normal and healthy. I may have sold some things at the wrong time, but also volatility is normal. So that would be more an external attribution to the bad event. It doesn't mean you just own any responsibility, but you are at least open to other factors 
beyond yourself that are out of your control that might be impacting it. And that's a healthy thing. Yeah, helping people grasp the roles of of luck and skill in financial markets where there's lots of both, uh, you know, perhaps is is a tricky thing. But I, I really like that. I was sort of visualizing it as a quadrant in my mind about you know uh, long term versus short term, you know, temporary versus permanent, these sorts of things. I, I, I like that positioning. Um, you know, one of the things that I get periodically. Uh, I think I think many of the the advisors with with whom I I work are exceptionally skilled counselors would have made excellent uh, you know social workers or psychologists, but I think there's a small subset that when I talk about some of the things that I talk about they'll they'll say something to the effect of you know this sounds this sounds like it could get messy right like if if I go into this part of the world uh, with my clients it seems like I much might touch a nerve and, and things might get messy. Now, you've written about how financial advisors are in a unique position to train conf- uh, train clients rather in conflict resolution around money. So that could get a little messy. So, so talk to us about why money is, is uniquely ripe for conflict. And, and then second off, why are advisors well positioned to help, do you think? Good points in, in that question. So one... Um, I would say it's already messy, whether you like it or not, that stuff is there. So the question is, what do you want to deal with it? And how much you want to deal with it depends on what is your job? What do you need to do? What do you need to accomplish? And I believe that financial planners need to start being open to these other things because it directly impacts the quality of advice that you give. We all know you can give the best technical answer Uh, or recommendation, but if it doesn't fit what the client is ready for from a behavior change perspective, Mm -hmm. or maybe you have a couple and the spouses, they don't agree on exactly where they want to go, your advice is going to miss and you're going to spend plenty of time (laughs) trying to come back at it and figure out what's going to work for them. And so why, why, why make it messy like that? Instead, seek to understand the skills and the concepts behind what is this human dimension of money? And when you do, you are more in control as a financial planner. You're more efficient. Your advice hits more often, more directly. And you have, you know, I haven't done the study, but likely, you know, more client retention, more referrals, because your client's going to have this greater sense of security, satisfaction, well-being if you can work with them holistically. That being said, you also need to have that referral list to therapists and counselors, just like you do alongside your accountants and your attorneys. That also normalizes that kind of referral and shows your client, hey, this is such a normal part of working with money that we have therapists on our referral list. If you ever need one or or we're ever having some obstacles, that might be something we recommend at some point in time. So, So that's, up to or partial answer to your question, Daniel. And I would say also that financial planners are in a great position to help with this because part of uh, working through conflict and disagreements, not only between within the couple, but between you and the client uh, is normal. It's is there. It's just whether or not it's bubbled to the surface or not. And when you are working with clients to align their differing attitudes, values, and beliefs, naturally, those are going to be in conflict to some degree. So you you need to work with the client to understand their perspectives to help them set a goal. And I don't think you can help a client set a goal without uncovering some of that 
conflict, especially with it with couple clients, because naturally they have different backgrounds, different family histories, different personalities. They're going to approach things and look at things very differently sometimes. Now they're going to have areas of overlap, but there's still going to be little areas that will be uncovered over time where they differ. So to do a good job in setting goals and helping your clients walk that path of behavior change, you really can't avoid the, the conflict and the friction that might be there, which the conflict literature actually states is healthy. Conflict is really just the symptom of differing perspectives. And if we want to build a relationship, we want to understand those differing perspectives so that we can come together, have a greater understanding and connection with that other person. And when we do and work through that friction and conflict, we can get to a better place, not only with money, but relationally as well. So all of that is so fantastic. But I want to go back to something you said sort of early in your comments there, which is that. Uh, the mess is there whether or not you acknowledge it, right? And if if you don't acknowledge it and you fail to to bring it to the surface and illuminate it and make it uh, give it some form so that you can deal with it, it's just sort of wreaking havoc silently behind the scenes. And I think uh, stuff continues to go wrong, and and no one can kind of name the <laughs> the the wrench in the works. And so I think it's going to be messy, uh, regardless of whether or not you bring it up. The only hope for it becoming less messy is in fact taking it on. Now, another piece that I loved about this, this same paper was that in, in figure two of that same paper, you give uh, a couple of practical steps for helping to resolve financial conflict. And I love a good academic paper, but what I love even more is a good academic paper that has some practical utility. So can you can you take us through what are just those couple of steps that that you outlined for handling financial conflict? Absolutely. So the steps I'll talk about, I did not create them. I became aware of the mediation literature. And when I did, just like positive psychology, I said, oh my goodness, this mm -hmm. fits so well. Why, why is there not anything really in the financial planning literature about conflict resolution strategies? So I really pulled these stages and steps from the conflict resolution mediation literature and I applied it to money. I applied it to that advising relationship. And that's where that framework comes from. And there's a few components. So first is setting the stage for conflict or friction, if you don't like the word conflict. And that involves normalizing money disagreements. So conflict is natural with money. We uh, typically have a sense of power attached to it. Like if you make more or you have more money on the balance sheet or you inherited wealth and the other person did not in a coupled relationship, there's power differences. Money is a scarce resource. Uh, even if you have so much of it that it's not so scarce, there's still those power dynamics that really come into play. So also looking at conflict as opportunity, not as this bad thing that we want to avoid, but as something that, yes, it's uncomfortable initially because we have to be vulnerable and open. But when we get to the other side of it in a constructive way, you, you end up in a much richer place than, than you were before. And there's growth and change. So as a financial planner, setting the stage for it yourself with just like the, the therapist referral, normalizing it, you know, telling your clients disagreements about money are so common that we make a point to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And when you're ready, of course, 
But there's this is something that is normal because you have different backgrounds and look at money differently and talk about it differently and see it differently. So this is just something that is a natural part of our process is to talk about each of your perspectives, understanding that there's going to be some differences between the two of you. And that's okay. We are excited to learn about it and work through it with you. So that's an example of setting the stage, normalizing its opportunity for growth and looking for opportunities to balance power wherever needed. So one person might not have as much financial knowledge as the other and feel a little weaker in the discussion because they don't really grasp maybe investment allocation or or debt and interest rates as well as the potentially more financially dominant person might. So sometimes you need to give a little financial education uh, to help balance power, even just helping control the meeting flow with talk to one person, then shift it to the other one, help them have more of a voice. So setting the stage is the fundamental first step. So then once we've kind of done that and we're interested in helping someone or a couple see eye to eye, and I, I keep saying couple, but this could be a parent and child. It could be an individual and their friend. You can even use this in a work setting with a colleague. I mean, this is broadly applicable across many, many domains. So the four major steps or stages of conflict resolution are, one, separate the people from the problem. Two, focus on interests, not positions. Three, generate options for mutual gain. And four, establish objective criteria. So I'll quickly define each one. We can talk about how it applies, but interrupt me, Daniel, at any point if you have a question or want me to pause on something. So separate the people from the problem. I want to wrap, wrap your head around, but it recognizes that any conflict involves people issues and the actual problem itself. The people issues are often rooted in history of a relationship. There's judgment, there's blame, there's respect issues to where the pro it's not really about the actual conflict problem. Uh, you're sort of at odds with um, you know, how you feel about that other person, whether or not they're listening to you, whether or not they're blaming you or you're blaming them. So it's sort of this relational people stuff. And in a conflict, there's that. And there's also the actual problem, such as we need to save. We need to maybe cut back on gifting to the kids because it's harming us financially, or we need to establish a budget, or we need to invest our money and have a a, an asset allocation that's healthy for us. So you have people issues and the problem issues. And conflict is often really difficult because of this sort of connection between the relational stuff and the problem stuff. So when we say separate the people from the problem, we need to recognize one that they can't always be totally separated. So when you're working with a couple or any sort of social relationship, Recognize that you're constantly working with the actual problem that is objective and they need to tackle and the people issues that are intertwined. So as much as possible, you have the, the people, you know, listen, reflect, you're helping them be assertive, not aggressive, uh, giving each other space to talk, to generate understanding such that when they can for lack of a better term, play nice and be nice to each other and listen, then, then you're at a place where you can tackle the problem and say, okay, I think we can all agree that, that the problem you're trying to tackle uh, is whether or not to cut certain expenses so you can save and reach the financial independence future that you want, mm -hmm. right? So that that's, that's that piece. And if you're having trouble sort of separating this 
relational stuff from the problem, then it could be an indicator of a therapeutic intervention where you're giving a referral because it's just impossible to disentangle that judgment and blame and fighting because they might have more deeply rooted issues that you don't even know about and can't deal with. So, so understanding that piece, separating the people from the problem, getting the couple or the individuals to focus on the problem and solving that and tackling that hard, but being easy and open and, and more forgiving to each other. That's that. Second, focus on interests, not positions. We often fight in our gridlocked because we're each taking a position on something, whether it's um, to save or not to save, to gift or not to gift, to uh, invest or not invest, right? That's the position. That's the thing we are grabbing onto and arguing about. Those positions are often and mostly rooted in underlying interests. Interests are the things that are motivating us to take a position. And the mediation literature suggests that the main reasons why we might take a position are to um, protect our safety, to maintain control, to protect um, our economic concerns and sense of safety and security around money. Uh, So a lot of those fundamental human needs of safety, security, achieving wellness and well-being are the things that are underpinning why we want something. So if if we can help clients focus on and understand and listen to each other around those underlying interests, then we have some flexible, movable ground where you can create alignment and actually solve something. But you will fight all day long uh, if you stay at that position level, because then it's a then it's a battle of power. Uh, it's a battle of, you know, who's going to compete and win that argument. But we soften when we get to that underlying interest level and then we can then we can get somewhere. So I, I think I have an I think I have an example of this at the risk of at the risk of oversharing. So my my in-laws are my in-laws are here visiting right now. And last night we were having a fun family conversation. And so they're like, hey, tell us about a big fight you had. So, you know, tell, oh, us, no. <laughs> tell us about, you know, what we, what was one of your earliest fights? So me and my wife and and right before we were going to be married, my wife uh, came to me and she she said, uh, you know, would you. Uh, if you lost your job, would you work at a fast food restaurant to support our family? And I was like, why would I work at a fast food restaurant? I have a doctoral degree. You know, I was like sort of, I was sort of offended by this question. I'm like, I didn't go to eight years of college to work at a fast food restaurant. Of course I would not do that. And she got very upset and we had this big fight and lest I, you know, lest I give too much intrigue to the, to the listeners, we haven't fought much in the intervening, you know, 16 years we've been married, but this was a big, big, big disagreement. And, you know, when we talked about it last night, of course, we're sort of laughing about it now, but when we talked about it and got sort of to the bottom of it, we had the same, the, the value beneath it was, will you work hard for our family? Like, will you, you know, will you do what it takes to support our family? And if it had been positioned thusly, I would have said yes, right? Like if if someone would have helped us kind of get to that underlying core value of, do you value hard work? Will you do what it takes to support, you know, to support our family? I would have said, well, of course I'll, yeah, of course I'll do that. But we kind of got hung up on the specificity of me going to work, you know, at, at McDonald's or whatever. And like it became this sort of very specific disagreement Mm -hmm. about the specific position 
all the while missing the really core of shared value underneath it, which we both have, which is, are we both committed to working hard to support our family? And yes, we both are. So it's like if someone could have helped us reframe it in that moment, I think it would have gone away immediately, but instead we're fighting about the specifics of McDonald's, right? <laughs> so. Right, and that was perfect. So working at a fast food place was the position. She said, you will, you said, I won't, right? And mm-hmm. then it escalated because emotions kind of came into play and you felt, you know, there could be feelings of disrespect or, you know, whatever might be there. And it's really hard for people, if you're in the argument, to step back from your own reaction and say, okay, wait a second, we need to do this differently. So it really helps to have a a independent third-party help. Now, couples don't always have that person at home. So when you become aware of conflict resolution strategies and skills, it it helps to, you know, be that person who steps back from that conflict and says, okay, I'm going to take the first step to let go of my you know, point here for a second and mm-hmm. say, okay, honey, um, it's important to you that I would work at a fast food place if mm-hmm. it needed um, in the in the future to support um, the family. Tell me more about that. What, where are you coming from? What does that mean? And just some collaboration then gives you more insight into what they mean. So you're reacting less and then you can flip it to you and then explain here's when when you say that here's my reaction here's where I'm coming from and then it's but it's so hard when you're in the fight to be the one to do that and I know I'm terrible at it when it's me when I'm helping other people I can do that but it's really hard when you're doing that for yourself so yeah no that's great that third party objectivity is is critical 20 26 year old Daniel needed that in a big way so Yeah. yeah All right. So I'll let you get back to your, your steps. I apologize. I just thought it was fresh on my mind. Good. No, that's perfect. I love it. So the next step is generating options for mutual gains. So the, the first two steps are about talking, listening, exploring what's going on, where are we coming from? And then options, generating options for mutual gain is about creativity and brainstorming around what are potential solutions that meet your interests and that meet mine? So the financial planner can facilitate this by just opening up the conversation to uninhibited brainstorming. So don't place boundaries on this yet. So a financial planner is going to want to bring in some numbers and say, well, from a gifting standpoint, you can do this or that, but don't do that yet. You have to wait because you risk implying judgment, you risk implying these certain constraints that may limit their creativity for a solution that actually fits really well. We have to accept the fact that as financial planners, we don't have all the answers. And that client is an expert in their own lives and they have the answers that will best fit who they are, that will serve their future and that will help them you know, come together and meet in the middle a little bit. So opening it up for brainstorming, there's a lot of ways you can do this. This could be the client goes home and brainstorms on their own and you meet with them in a week or so after they've had a chance to think and, you know, go through it. You could do sort of a brainstorming session right there and then. It is also beneficial to have each person create a list of ideas based on the other person's interests and needs. So you know, what does working hard for the family look like? You know, you take the perspective of what would, what do you think she would say? And, and she takes a perspective of what um, you would say. So you, you're kind of taking that other person's perspective into 
the conversation and you're trying to have empathy and come up with what might work for them. So that's generating options for mutual gain. The, the last step is establishing objective criteria. This is where the financial planner loves to be. This is tax law. This is spreadsheets. These are numbers. This is finally putting some parameters around these ideas in terms of what is feasible, what works, what are maybe the top three or four ideas a client has, and let's look at how to implement and does this work or not. So if you do the numbers, that objective criteria too early, the financial planner also risks appearing to side with one particular person. Mm. Because sometimes the, the numbers often justify one side, right? You know, like gifting, well, numbers say you got to cut down tremendously or you must stop, right? And if you give that recommendation early on, the person whose position that is will say, ha, see, I told you so. And, and then you're going to escalate and you're going to lose one person feeling heard and it's it'll break down from there. But if you wait till the end, now you've established a foundation of mutual respect, understanding and empathy for each other's interests. And you've developed an understanding of what it is each of them needs. So the numbers may be the numbers, but with that discussion, you're able to highlight how a particular solution might actually meet both of their needs. Um, the example I like to give is maybe buying a second home or something. So maybe the position is to buy or not to buy, but the underlying interest for one is financial security and the other is to develop strong, vibrant relationships with the family. Yeah. So maybe the answer is don't buy that second home, but there are other ways to, you know, tr maybe travel and do events that, that, help to foster those relationships, but also don't put your future financial security in jeopardy. Yeah, no, that's great. One of the things that I found, I, I always felt, uh, I, I felt very skilled as an individual psychotherapist when I was practicing and I felt very hopeless as a marriage counselor. And I, one of the, you know, one of the things that was always tough for me was getting both parties to feel like I was equally on their side. And so, uh, because look, honestly, I usually liked one person better than the other. So, uh, you know, trying to, trying to be thoughtful about at which point you sort of interject that specific advice uh, look for mutual wins, try and uh, identify those underlying values, I think is is really sound advice. Sarah, tell us the name of this article. So uh, you've given so much great value here. I want people, I know people are going to want to go revisit the article and, and walk through these steps. What's the name of that article? So the article I'm referring to, I actually have two of them. The one that has is the, I would say the most comprehensive for application is planning for conflict in client relationships. And that's in the Journal of Financial Planning, I believe, um, October 2018. And my co-author is Emily Purden on that. And then the Journal of Financial Therapy, I also have a piece in there called Building Financial Peace, a Conflict Resolution Framework for Money Arguments. That was my initial paper. And then I did a follow-up with Emily. We did, we added some communication skills, responses to conflict and a bit more application for the journal financial planning. 
Yeah. So I loved all of the research you've shared with me. You've given great rundowns so far, but I, I have to choose a favorite. And my, my favorite of all the pieces you shared uh, was a look at the connection between financial behavior and personality. Now, I think you, you rightly suggest that financial advisors develop a bit of a sixth sense or an intuition about which of their clients will need a little extra handholding in a volatile market. But you're saying even moving past this intuition or the sixth sense and having a more concrete, better formalized sense of your of your client's personality is worth doing. So you give great rundowns of some of the different personality um, frameworks in there, Hexaco, Big Five. I'm going to run through the Big Five super, super fast just so the listeners will have a framework for thinking about these things. So big five, an easy way to remember it is ocean, right? So the O is for openness to experience. The C is for conscientiousness. The E is for extroversion. The A is for agreeableness. And the N is for neuroticism. So openness is sort of a willingness to try new things. Uh, Conscientiousness is just your level of uh, planfulness is an easy way to think about it. Extroversion, everyone knows. Agreeableness is is your willingness to to sort of rock the boat and and say controversial things or or perhaps even tell a painful truth versus sort of preserving uh, social harmony and and keeping things quiet. So when I think about the big five, Sarah, like neuroticism jumps out at me. Like, of course, of course, we want to know, like, which of our clients uh, have high anxiety levels. Neuroticism is a bit of an outdated word for it. But like, we want to know which of our clients are easily stressed, which of our clients have have high levels of anxiety. There's a very obvious uh, thread that runs from there through uh, through financial behavior. At Orion, we we measure that as part of our risk tolerance questionnaire. We we measure risk composure, we call it, and and so that's that's very obvious to me. The less obvious ones, things like extroversion, things like openness and agreeableness. Do we do we still want to know these things? Does it matter for an advisor to know these other things, or is it really neuroticism's the big one? That's a great great question, and there's a, a and pers- uh, sort of perspectives in my response to that. Um, one would be why wait. So the big five traits are very well studied. They've been applied in personality psychology to a variety of different behaviors, even financial behaviors. So we don't know definitively, right? Causality is tough, but we don't know definitively how they'll behave and every individual is unique, but there's a lot of evidence for how different personality traits tend to produce certain financial behaviors. So one, it's helpful to know early on to get a a sense of, how might my client respond to this while simultaneously not assuming you know because you don't, so you still have to get to know them. So having an understanding of their basic functionality at the level of personality traits gives you insight maybe into some questions you might want to ask. Uh, But furthermore, it helps you get to know your client. And if you're interested in bringing in the therapeutic psychology side of money into your practice, I think personality traits is a really good, non-judgmental, low-risk place to start. So if you ask someone to say, okay, talk about who you are, your personality, these are the big five, here's how you scored. How do you see 
out in your life. Uh, tell me a little bit about how this might impact the way you work with money. So if someone's highly conscientious, they'll maybe look at that and say, oh yeah, I'm so task oriented. I love budgeting. I do it every day. And you know, this is just something that gets me going or someone who might be low in conscientiousness says, oh, it's a real, I have a really hard time keeping track of things. I think I'm financially secure, but I'm not sure. I really hate spreadsheets and I hate the budgeting process. It also gives you insight into how their personality might inform things, solutions they might like or solutions they might not like, Mm -hmm. um, for example. So it's a great, I think, icebreaker into this therapeutic psychology side. Um, People generally like to talk about who they are makes them tick. Now, you might have some clients who are a bit more reserved. It might take a little bit longer to warm up, but that's going to be less invasive than maybe money scripts on your first meeting, which talks about, you know, the stories we tell ourselves about money that come from our past history and family experiences. Like that's great stuff too, but you you might have a slightly harder time getting clients to open up really early on. So personality can be a way into that that gives you insight into how they tick, what, what, um, how they view their money, how they view their, their uh, basic human functioning as it relates to money. And then also, if you're in a larger firm to where you have a, a larger advisory practice with many different financial planners and you're assigning clients to certain financial planners, Having an understanding of that client's personality might help you best match them with the right person early on to set that relationship up for success. So if you have an advisor who's a little more neurotic, you have a highly neurotic client and you can see that right away from some of these assessments, that might not be the best match. You will need someone who can um, maintain calm and help uh, comfort them. Now, that's not to say if you're an advisor, you're slightly higher on neuroticism that you can't work with neurotic clients because personality is all about understanding who we are, what our triggers are, what makes us tick, and then working with that trait and adjusting it in the moments where we need to. So if you know you're a little bit higher on neuroticism, what are some strategies that you can put in place to help you manage those negative emotions when they come up a little bit better? So anyway, I digress on that, but this idea of matching advisors, we don't have research on that right now to tell you, okay, this trait matches this one, but um, we do need future research on that. But that's another reason why you might want to start looking at this early on before you discover who your client is three years later and that is not working, you know. That could be a reason why. Yeah, I would encourage everyone to go check out my episode. It's, I don't remember which number. It's an early episode with Dr. Jordan Turner where we talk about personality. Um, We talk about big five and different personality types. I think once you get introduced to this, it's it's a non-judgmental framework. You know, I love it because even something like high neuroticism, which doesn't sound great. Like, I mean, there's, you know, I, I I would put myself in that camp. I'd put myself in the camp of having over, you know, higher than average neuroticism. And it leads me in some ways to be empathetic and a good risk manager and different things that all of these things have upside and downside. And I think especially if you position it differently, position agreeableness as forthrightness and you know, uh, position neuroticism is proneness to stress or something like that. I think, I think there's ways to use these sound academic models to get a really deep understanding of your clients that benefits everything from, you know, like you said, who you match them with, how you communicate with them, 
right on down to the type of products you select for them and and even their asset allocation. I think uh, I think it's a powerful construct. I hope people will go check out the big five. You outlined some of the more empirically supported in there. I find a lot of people, I won't name specific names, but I find a lot of times people who have an interest in personality have come across some sort of junky pop psych sort of, uh, ways to measure personality. And I hope people will go, uh, go, go get the good stuff, go get the valid, reliable stuff from, from the big five. So Sarah, this has been completely fantastic. It has been, uh, you know, it's been a pleasure to speak with you and some of your research colleagues over the last couple of weeks. If, if people want more, uh, where can people follow you? Where can they learn more about your work and and read some of your research? So most new research, pretty, regularly on LinkedIn. Um, So that's probably the best place to go to get an idea of some things I've written. I also have a research gate page to where if if you want to pull some publicly available articles, I've got links to those. But at any event, if you email me at my TTU email address, you can just find me at uh, ttu.edu and the financial planning program. Uh, in the School of Financial Planning, you can find my email. It's on the just on the web. So email, LinkedIn, or ResearchGate would be the three main ways to stay in touch. All right, Dr. Sarah, keep cranking out these great papers that deepen our understanding of how our minds and monies uh, meet. Will do. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliate subsidiaries and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.